2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll just give you a minute to flick there or scroll there. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on my own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. So he urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also the completion to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the, great, with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved, sorry. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much does not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Thank you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for this Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honour for Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so the churches can see it. Sorry, Millie, I was giving you the hurry up there. I was actually just illustrating the zealous part there of that verse. Just as I come up, I was just showing what zealousness looks like. That's not true at all. I'm sorry about that, Millie. Uh, welcome. Great to have you along today, guys. My name's Tim. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. It's great to have you along. Now, just remind me, folks, a youth church is on or not on? Not on at the moment. Starts up when school starts up. 
So I just want to make sure. How about um, as we look at this part of God's word, please make sure you've got a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, there should be one at the back. If there's not, see someone and grab one and it'll wrestle one out of their hands and scribble their name out and write yours in. No, um, if you don't have a Bible and there's a spare one, please write your name in that. We want you to have it. How about I pray and we'll rip in. Uh, Father in heaven, we ask that by your spirit you'd be with us this, all this morning as we hear your word, that we might listen with ears that are open and hearts that are soft and that we will be rightly transformed by it. Uh, whether that be through uh, comfort or challenge, we ask this that we would live lives that honour and glorify Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Right, as I said, uh, we are continuing our sermon series in 2 Corinthians today. And if you've been coming along or listening online for the most part, hopefully you will have noticed there's a little bit of a change in tact or tone in Paul's letter now or in the last couple of chapters from, uh, by comparison to the first few chapters. What I mean by that is in the first few chapters, uh, Paul felt necessary to defend his ministry among the Corinthians on various fronts. It appears that the Corinthian church, after starting strong, after Paul had planted them, they've been sort of subtly or dramatically, I'm not sure, but they've been led away somehow by Paul, uh, from Paul by some different teachers some sort of flashy, important-looking, impressive-looking characters who have been undermining Paul to the Corinthian Christians and more significantly and dangerously undermining the only authentic gospel of salvation through trust in Jesus that Paul taught. And because Paul is the real deal and because the gospel he preaches is the only true message of hope and salvation, Paul has stuck in there with the Corinthians. Despite all the relational difficulties, he's defended the truth of the gospel and he's defended the sincerity of his love and his concern for them. That's what Paul did in the sort of first five chapters of this letter. Adequately defended some of these contentious points and then reaffirmed the true foundation of the gospel. And just to summarize that all, if I can, his major point is, or was, and still is, that the salvation message is not based on the power or the wisdom or the impressiveness of men, but on God's power through his spirit to turn that which looks weak to the eyes of worldly wisdom, wisdom, i.e. a crucified Messiah and a bunch of untrained bogans, fishermen as his heralds. God uses those things, those weak, foolish things in the eyes of the world, and he flips them to demonstrate the vastness of his wisdom and power by comparison. In fact, have a look how Paul put this in 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18. If you've got your Bible there, flick back a couple of pages. But 1 Corinthians 1.18 said this. Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and then he quotes God speaking in Isaiah 29, God saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. What does this mean practically, folks? It means that those who ignore or disregard or undermine or mock the cross of Christ, whether it be as nonsense or irrelevance, maybe even malevolence, they do so because they are still trusting their own wisdom and intelligence. Rather than seeking and submitting and trusting to God's wisdom and power, which is manifest through the cross of Christ and gifted to God's people by his Spirit. Do you realize that? That's why the so-called super apostles in Corinth, and let's be honest, still millions of people today are either hostile or indifferent to the gospel of Christ. 
because they both continue to rely on their own wisdom and power and refuse to seek and submit to God's. Therefore, they do not know God's spirit, which is the only way that it is illumined or God's word is illumined to make his wisdom and power not just plain but obvious through Jesus. That's why people reject him. That's why people alienate him. That's why people keep him at arm's length. They're trusting their own wisdom, their own understanding. But there's a difference. There's an alternative. For those whom God has humbled, for those whom he has called to realize the obvious and profound limitations of human power, wisdom, and intelligence, my limitations, your limitations of power, wisdom, and intelligence, what does the gospel represent to you? We'll just flick back a page to 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Look back if you've got your Bibles open there. It is by God's grace through his spirit that the genuine Christians are those who have come to the realization that the gospel is like a treasure in a clay jar. We're the clay jars, fragile and dispensable. But when the gospel has been made manifest through the spirit, this clay jar becomes different. Though still weak in itself, it is given a new hope of strength from a different source, an all-surpassing power, says Paul, from God, not from ourselves, so that even though we may feel pressed in by the pressures of life, we will not be crushed. That even though we will feel perplexed and confused at times by the trials that you will face, and you will face many, utter despair is staved off. And that though persecution may come in a variety of forms, and let's be honest, the options are only increasing, an assurance of God's presence and his favour remains steadfast. In fact, as Paul puts it there in verse 16, it's ultimately this, this gospel hope, this treasure in a jar of clay that helps explain and make sense of this strange duality we experience in life. Look what I mean there in chapter 4 verse 16. Paul says to the Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now do you hear that? That is a strange promise that is precious to all Christians. Why is it so precious? Because it explains life, which is difficult at times, and even if you're here today and you live the most privileged existence ever, you realize old age, frailty, and eventually death will overtake you. Outwardly, everyone will waste away. But with the gospel, with the hope of Christ and his spirit living in us, Christians exclusively get to experience an inward renewal, an inward renewal day by day. As by God's spirit, we are, it's God's spirit, we are deepened in a knowledge and an appreciation and a love of him. As we sit under his word, as we seek to apply it to our lives, as we seek him in prayer, as we encourage and exhort and correct Christian brothers and sisters and are likewise encouraged and exhorted and corrected by them. See, these are some of the means by which this inward renewal that Paul speaks about here, this is the means by which it comes, even as the exterior is crumbling. In fact, think about this. It's why some of the oldest Christians I know are also the most vibrant and full of life people that I know. Do you know some of those? People who are so soaked in scripture and so aware of God's grace to them through Christ that though they may forget how to do the simplest tasks of life, general living, 
they're still somehow bursting and bubbling over with spiritual vitality. I can think of two that just come to mind straight away. An old lady, she only just recently died, a very dear friend from Wagga, moved up to Queensland, Olive Barber was her name. I remember Olive getting very dithery in her old age, to the point where she managed, and I don't understand how she did this, doing the ironing. Instead of putting water in the iron, she somehow managed to pack it full of brown sugar. I don't even know how she did that. That's an achievement in itself. Syrup spurting out instead of steam. Whack. (laughs) And yet she had the most tender heart, the most compassionate care and generous spirit that I've ever seen in a lady. And it just grew as she got older. No matter how many wacky things she did. Or another lady you might know, if you're a Wagga kid, if you're a Christian college kid, Ethel McNeil, the lady who first taught Christian studies here at the Christian college. She, after 40-something years in Australia, still had a Scottish accent as broad as the horizon, but she had this steely piercing gaze and a keen, such a keen awareness of Christ's work in her own life that she was just effervescing in spiritual encouragement. Though she used to get her words mumbled and flustered and the kids would tease her mercilessly. Just don't do it, she used to say all the time. You know. <laughs> Aim to be that person as you get older. Aim to be that person inwardly renewed each day by a greater apprehension of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus, even as the faculties of your life fail you. And so after defending himself against the concern, these concerns of the Corinthians and re-establishing the foundations of this authentic gospel to the Corinthians, Paul now changes his tack somewhat from chapter 6 onwards and he starts teaching or rather reteaching the Corinthians what the fruit of the gospel ought look like in practical terms in the life of a genuine Christian person because he wants them to be people inwardly renewed. He wants them to be people who, despite their ageing, would be spiritual giants. And so the last couple of weeks, we've looked at this, this gospel fruit. In fact, Jeff showed us a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago from chapter 6, how discipleship, that is doing life closely and deeply with other Christians, is a mark of gospel fruit in a person's life. So too from verse 6, the desire for holiness, to be growing in Christ's likeness, to be distinct from the world around you. It's not an optional extra for the Christian person. It is a direct outworking of the gospel in a person's life. Make no truce with sin was Jeff's line. If you didn't listen to it, go back on the podcast and listen to it. And likewise, last week, Russ showed us from chapter 7 how repentance that is godly sorrow as distinct from worldly sorrow, godly sorrow, not just Guilt, remorse, regret. No, godly sorrow, that which snaps us into action, which leads us to repentance, it is likewise a non-negotiable fruit of the gospel transformation in a person's life. And by that I mean there is no authentic Christian, alive or dead, who did not know their daily, uh, did not recognize their daily need to repent and cling to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Repentance and faith are the daily staples of a Christian diet and a direct fruit of the gospel in a person's life. Again, if you missed Russ last week, get on the podcast. Magnificent good stuff. And so today as we look at chapters 8 and 9, another non-negotiable fruit on display here from Paul is this theme of generosity. The grace of God manifests in a person's life so that that would be marked by their willingness to give generously. 
And in fact, here's the big idea that I want you to be convinced of today. Quick, lock the doors. No, no, I'm joking. Of course not. You want to lock the doors of this? It feels awkward, doesn't it? But it doesn't have to be. Let me read the big idea. Generosity. That is the willingness to be generous both with your time, money, your energy, and your talents has a direct connection with your understanding of God's grace to you personally. Did you get what I'm saying there? Let me, let me explain it a little differently. What I mean is that the more you understand and appreciate the grace of God and His rich generosity toward you through Jesus, in which He has personally ransomed you from the penalty of sin and judgment, adopted you into His family, and made you an heir of His eternal kingdom, the more you understand and appreciate the enormity and the future ramifications of this personally, then the more obvious and instinctive generosity in all its forms ought be to you. The more cheerful you'll be to put your hand in your pocket to support gospel work. The more ready you'll be to reorganize your time and your diary in light of gospel priorities. The more committed you'll be to pour out your energy in gospel-shaped ministries. Now, I'm not just plucking that from the clear blue sky, folks. It's right there in the first five verses of this chapter. In fact, look at it with me. Have a look at 2 Corinthians. The air conditioner is blowing my page over. 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Let me read a little bit with you here. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, just hang on a minute. Do you hear or do you see the direct link there that Paul makes between the grace of God given to the Macedonian churches and their rich generosity? In fact, it's made all the more remarkable and noteworthy because this rich generosity came in a season for the Macedonians that was marked by, verse 2, severe trials, extreme poverty... And overflowing joy? What? That's not a triplet you'll see very often. Those three things don't normally go together, yet they go together here and they can simultaneously live side by side for the Macedonian churches only because of the grace of God to them. And not just that, it's not just that they sit side by side, this strange trifecta results in rich generosity. That's bizarre. And yet that's the testimony of God's grace to the Macedonians. In fact, Paul continues, keep reading with me from verse 3. For I testify, he says, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. Let me just stop there for a minute again. Imagine that. People begging to share in the service of the Lord's people, begging to be involved, not as a burden or a drudgery, but as a privilege. Now, I'm not saying that to to, uh, shame anyone here, not in the slightest. But when was the last time you urgently pleaded for the opportunity to share in the service of the Lord's people? It just reads so uncommon and so unnatural to my own thoughts and experience, and I'm assuming at this point, I'm hoping I'm not alone, but that seems to be Paul's point. That's the point that he's making. God's grace produces supernatural results. Finish off verse 5 with me though. He says, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord 
and then by the will of God also to us. And it's from this verse that I think it's reasonable to infer that Paul's reference to their rich generosity, this service of the Lord's people, it's not just a financial thing, but it includes time and energy and talents along with the cold hard stuff we call cash. They gave first of themselves to God. God's not looking for a check. (laughs) But then they gave themselves to God's people. Time, energy, money, talents. So friends, here's the big idea. Here's the main theme or encouragement from this passage. It's fairly simple. It's unambiguous. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is calling all Christians, starting with the Corinthians, and including us who take the same title, Christian, to excel in generosity to excel in the grace of giving. I've put it there on the front of your outlines and I didn't make it up myself. I stole it off Paul. It's in there. I know the air conditioner again. It's in there. Verse uh, 7 of chapter 8. Excel in the grace of giving. Excel in the grace of giving grounded in and motivated by God's rich generosity to you in Christ. Now that's pretty straightforward and obvious stuff, isn't it, from the text? I don't think it's, is that that contentious? I don't think it is. Yet I'd be doing everyone a massive disservice if I just sat down now. Much as you'd like me to, I'm not going to. I'd be doing us a massive disservice because there's more to unpack here. In fact, as Casper mentioned, I'd be doing us a disservice because this kind of passage, one that speaks so directly, directly and openly and challengingly about generosity, especially as it relates to financial generosity, that makes me a little nervous at least a little bit cautious in our cultural context. And I think you're aware of that. That's why I can make the joke about lock the doors and everyone sort of nervously laughs and goes, what is he serious? You can lock the doors? No! But it works because of this. So before we go any further, there's a couple of things I want to get out on the table so that we hear and understand, so that you hear and understand this part of God's word in terms of what it is saying rather than in terms of what it isn't saying or what someone told you it was saying when they weren't being careful with the text. So firstly, let's just acknowledge the dead dog here. It's uncomfortable in our culture to talk about money. To talk about money, about whether it be how much you make, how much you have, how much you share, it's a taboo subject. It's a subject, like I said, that immediately causes a great deal of suspicion and particularly in a church context. Because, let's be honest, unfortunately, there is a long and sordid history of so-called churches and ministries either teaching and twisting the Bible very poorly on the subject of money and generosity in a variety of ways that causes us to be suspicious. Anywhere from the sort of the fear and guilt-mongering or the manipulating and coercing people into giving money to make individuals rich, You'll have heard of those or distorting scripture to some sort of give to get scheme, like a pyramid scheme, such as the prosperity gospel, which so blatantly twists scripture to appeal to people's own sense of greed and desire for worldly riches over and against the recognition of the better riches of grace and forgiveness already secured in Christ. No doubt everyone's got a story or heard a story whether it be churches or individual ministers who have operated more like extortionists or standover men than ambassadors for Christ. I mean, you know the routine. I mean, I heard of an account once from a friend who went to a church up in the lower mountain somewhere where a love offering was taken up for the visiting preacher. The baskets were passed around during the last song and then passed around again. And then passed around again, the same song on repeat, because someone apparently deemed that there wasn't enough offering in the love that time, the first two trips around. 
It's disgraceful. Or part of my grandfather's rejection of all things to do with church was his memory of the priest visiting his mother only on occasions when his father wasn't at home. And he visited her because though she wasn't welcome at church, she was a Catholic and she married a Protestant, she couldn't come. He'd still come around and put the bite on her to kick the church coffers. And my grandfather remembers that and despised all things God because of it. And no doubt we've all seen the American tele-evangelists in air quotes, in shiny suits with the bouffant hairstyles, with the skin around their eyes and necks somehow getting tauter with age? That defies logic. <laughs> but you know the type telling people that if they just sow a $1,000 prayer seed, this is when they really can give to get. They give it to this ministry, then they can expect God to unlock the heavenly storehouses of grace. In fact, 2 Corinthians 9.6 is a classic verse taught in contradiction to its context, allegedly for this purpose. And it's garbage. In fact, I'll deal with that verse in a minute. But if you're someone who is, like me, immediately suspicious when the talk gets to money or giving, then let me make a couple of other things really abundantly clear for you now as it relates to us here at WEC. You see, we're not addressing the issue of generosity or giving today for any other reason than it happens to be the major topic in the section of Scripture we happen to be up to. (laughs) Our pattern at Wagga Evangelical Church is to teach through books of the Bible from go to woe, and we let God's word set the agenda. So if the topic is, whatever the topic is, whatever the issue is, whatever is the focus of that particular chapter of that particular book that we're studying, that's what we'll hone, that's what we'll hone in on. In fact, today is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, very unambiguous. It's about generosity and giving. So we're talking about generosity and giving. In fact, secondly, this topic comes to us at a time of great encouragement for us as a church on the financial side of things. I happened to be meeting with Sherry just this week, our treasurer, and she was able to tell me, um, we're talking about our budget for the year ahead. She informed me that we actually reached our targeted giving for 2022 with $270 in the kicker. What? That's magnificent. That's even more magnificent. In fact, Sherry will come up and give a proper (laughs) budget report in a couple of weeks' time. But that is staggering considering that midway through the year, I think we were $12,000 behind midway through the year. Something in that order. It was multiple thousands of dollars behind and through God's goodness and your generosity, that gap was closed. So there's no way that you should interpret or hear this from a cranky pastor browbeating his wayward sheep with gear and filth and intimidation and a desperate need on his mind. Come on, I need a new ivory back scratcher. Who can help me out? (laughs) I knew you looking like that. (laughs) No, I'm enormously grateful to God for the way that he continues to provide for us here at WEC and the ministries done through us here as a church family. And it's through your generosity as a church family. May it long continue. Thirdly, important for you to know, and especially if you're new or visiting, I don't have a clue who gives what to church, whether how much or how little you may give. And that's deliberate and by design. I don't want to know that information because I wouldn't want it to influence me in any way on how I treated you, whether for good or ill. I've got no clue. So no one's going to ask you any specific questions about your giving. No elders will come around to your house to go through your bank statements with you. I actually heard of a church that did that. Wow. And in fact, if you are new or, or, or visiting here, you'll notice we don't pass around a plate or a bag both because we don't want you to feel any expectation for you to give 
In fact, if you're new or visiting here, if you're checking out WEC because you've just moved to town, something of that nature, we don't want you to give. You're our guests. Our regular church family are aware of the avenues for contributing financially, and if you become a regular member, you'll work that out too in due course. You're our guest. It's really lovely to have you. And fourth, this is my final caveat before I make some points. I'll get back to the Bible here. <laughs> I don't want you to hear or think or apply anything that, we're about to, that we've talked about today just to your generosity at WEC exclusively or your home church if you're visiting from somewhere else. I think that's really important to get. Again, Paul is not trying to create insular little holy huddles of people who just care about their own backyard. No, rather he's writing to demonstrate to the Corinthians how the family of God collectively, from every province, from every part of the world, ought be striving to be richly generous in increasing measure to genuinely meet the physical needs of all brothers and sisters and more importantly, bring glory to God whose own rich generosity is the motivation for giving. In fact, we looked at this at New Year's, yes, New Year's, uh, Acts 18. Do you know how Paul was able to give up tent making and preach full time in Corinth? Do you remember? It's because the Macedonian churches kicked the tin. They were, he actually was tent making when he first went to Corinth and it was because the Macedonian churches, who I think the Philippians are part of that mob, they actually gave generously so that when Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth with, to Paul, they gave him a gift from those churches so that Paul could put the tent making aside and preach the, preach the gospel full time. It's not just a focus on your little holy huddle. Don't just think weck here exclusively. And in fact, it's why as a church we also give 11%, I think it is, of our of the money that we receive in in offerings we give to partner with other gospel ministries locally nationally international we give locally to things like uh, the sre or the local uni the uh, uh, afes australian fellowship of evangelical students here at csu we give nationally we we uh, support a church plant in singleton that's been sort of battling on for years so that he doesn't have to be a tent maker we support uh, mission support workers in Arnhem Lands, our own family from here, the, the Newths, with uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship. We support a, a frontline ministry workers to immigrants in Western Sydney, the Blairs, through Pioneers. Internationally, we, we give to Voice of the Martyrs, an organisation that supports persecuted Christians around the globe, and Local Leaders International. It used to be OCA, Local Leaders International. We support two students who are doing their theological, country, uh, theological studies in their home countries to do native gospel ministry in those spaces. I don't want you to just be thinking weck in the holy huddle. I want you to think wider ab- abroad. Now, now, all those caveats in place. <laughs> Let me make a few points from the text and the rest of this chapter. I've banged on for a bit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually make some points reasonably quickly. I want to show you where they come from. But I want to leave you, in fact, you'll notice in your outlines there, I've got some questions there for you to personally mull over in order to understand or apply them to yourself. Because after all, I want you to get this and I want you to hear this well again. The only audience you need to be concerned in pleasing in this regard is the final arbiter of all things, and that is God himself. Because it's ultimately God alone who has given you everything and it's to him alone that you'll give an account for how you steward steward those things that he's given time money energy talents so a couple of quick points from the text they're in your outline the first one i've made already here's point one generosity 
in terms of your time, money, and energy is a direct fruit of the gospel transformation and reflects your understanding and appreciation of God's grace to you personally. We've seen that already in the first five verses. Here's a couple of little questions to ponder. I've written them down for there or down there for you to reflect on. The first one is, have you rightly grasped the awesomeness of the gospel of grace to you? Not to you, to you personally, you sitting there, you. The person that stares back at you in the mirror every morning. And then, if so, how is it reflected in your bank statements, in your weekly timetable, in your energy state, in your energy tanks? Is the apprehension of the gospel reflected in those three areas? Three key diagnostics to be asking. It ought to be reflected because those things will, in fact, if anybody looked at those, they would get to see quickly what you, uh, what you prioritize, what you yearn for, what you value most. And in reflecting on that, where do you need to make adjustments? Think on that. Second point, though, let me go quickly. Jesus himself is the example of rich generosity par excellence. Have a look at this. Have a look in uh, chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 8, 8 and 9 says this. I'm not commanding you, says Paul, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you understand that? Jesus who has everything, God, in the, God becomes flesh, enters into our existence. Not because he has to, but because he chose to. He gave up everything so that you might become a co-inheritor of everything. That's magnificent. That is huge. A couple of questions for you to ponder. What motivates your willingness to be generous? Is it fear? Is it guilt? Or is it the grace of God to you? Because you realize that you've been made a co-heir of that eternal kingdom through trust in Jesus. Have you grasped that? <laughs> how ought that or how would that change your motivation, your cheerfulness, your willingness, your preparedness for generosity in all areas with a deeper apprehension? Point three, the goal of generous giving is not for you to miss out, but for each to have enough. Have a look what I mean by this. Have a look at it with me in uh, chapter 8, verses 13. I'll go through to 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while uh, you are hard-pressed, but, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who had gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, this is not a communist manifesto here. Watch out, you lefties. No, just call your jets. All right. Paul is quoting Exodus here. We've just finished Exodus in relation to God's province, sorry, provision of manna in the desert. God promised and delivered daily bread for the Israelites in the desert. Enough for today. Not too little, not too much. Let me ask, is that how you think about your material positions or provisions? Enough for today? Enough for today so that you continue to trust God to supply your needs? Or are you stockpiling just in case? And if the idea of stockpiling to you doesn't seem very biblical, it's because it isn't. 
And I want you to notice something else here. Notice that Paul doesn't put precise figures on things here. He doesn't say you must give this much or X percent. In fact, the Old Testament 10% tithe is not taught anywhere in the New Testament that I can see. Rather, he talks about enough. But he says here equality, but that word equally translated fairness, enough. So each might, so it might be fair. People have enough, not too little, not too much. That's the standard that Paul advocates for. It's really helpful he does that because if he said 10%, you'd go to 10% and no more. And for some of us here, 10% is a joke. For some of us, 10% is way too big. So here's a question to ponder. How do you define too little? How do you define too much? Would you be comfortable explaining and defending your definition before God? And does your definition play out practically in your life? Is your life marked by extreme lavishness with no regard to others? Or is it marked by extreme austerity, you know, the, the humble brag of going without? Or is it marked by enough, not too little, not too much, and a principle of being prepared to share with others? Lastly, last point that I'll make. You have an obligation before God to be generous. Yet your motivation matters. Have a look at with me this one. This is, comes from chapter 9. This is the only one that I'll do from chapter 9. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 6 through to 9. Remember this, says Paul, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Well, hold the phone. Isn't this teaching the prosperity gospel, the old give-to-get routine? Looks like it to me. I've heard it taught that way. I've heard this verse plucked out and taught that way, but it is bang out of order in terms of the context. Keep reading. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now did you hear that? How does God desire to bless you abundantly? By providing your needs and abounding you in good works. That is by increasing your opportunity and your capacity to live well, to increase your harvest of righteousness, verse 10, which looks like giving you more opportunities to be generous, verse 11, with the desired result being the thanksgiving of God. How not give to get theology is that? It's the exact opposite. It boggles me. It infuriates me that people would use this to twist this to say, give cheerfully and God will give you more. You can't outgive God. Oh gosh, that makes me really angry. Sorry about that. <clears throat> this is not about increasing your material wealth and possessions personally. It's about increasing the praise and thanksgiving that you generate for God through Him giving you more opportunities to be generous. Wow, that is spectacular. Here's some questions for reflection. Have you bought into the give to get mentality, even subtly? Is your pressing concern in life a material harvest or a harvest of righteousness that glorifies God? 
And lastly, how ought this change the way you pray this week? Friends, we're going to stop here. In fact, I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to lead us in prayer. But can I encourage you, if anything today has sort of struck a chord, rung a bell, I don't know, rattled a cage, prompted a question, don't leave here without talking to someone about that. Can I encourage you, take the time over morning tea outside or inside, talk to someone. Look at the questions that I've got there. I've given you a bit of homework to do, in, in essence. Talk to your Bible study buddies. Come and grab me afterwards. Whatever you do, this is part of discipleship. This is part of desiring holiness. This is part of repenting where necessary. This is the fruit of the gospel in transforming lives. And we're going to ask now that God would excel us in the grace of giving. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your rich generosity to us in Christ Jesus who though he was rich became poor so that through his poverty, through his pain and his payment for our penalty, we have become rich in relationship and peace with you. And Father, we ask that by your spirit now that you would cause us all to excel in the gift of giving, not motivated by guilt, nor fear, nor greed, nor just to tender our own little backyard, but motivated by grace, that you would enlarge our capacity and our willingness for generosity in the giving of our time and our money and our energy and our talents, not just here at WEC, but across the town, across our country, across the world, wherever you would help us to recognize gospel need and gospel opportunity. And we'd ask that you would do this, not for our glory, but for yours alone. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.